This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You may be seated. We are in the middle of a series through 1 Peter, and the theme is, is exiles, asking the question, how do we as exiles live in this world while we yet belong to another? Now, the style of this letter of 1 Peter, it has this cyclical nature to it. There are about four or five themes that go around and around and in and out, and you see them woven in through all the different sections of the letter. And the theme that we're going to pay particular attention to today is this call to a holy life. So in several places, he says, live good lives, do good, do good deeds, be zealous for what is good and righteous, and so on. If you have your Bible, open to 1 Peter chapter 2, and where we began, we'll, we'll, we'll read that again, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh, if you want to know what those are, just look at Galatians 5, where there's the list of the fruit of the Spirit. There's also a list of the passions of the flesh, but it's things like sexual immorality, drunkenness, but also rage, jealousy, greed, anger, etc. Do not let these dominate, but rather, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when, Christians were not liked in the beginning. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is referring to when Christ returns, and everything will be uh, made known for what it was that the hidden things will be revealed, the things in the darkness will be brought into the light. So I was just recently reading a story about a man named uh, David Braun who was imprisoned in a Russian prison during the 30s, and he was in a cell, a small cell with a couple hundred other men. And in that cell, there was a Greek Orthodox priest, and he said that priest shone like a candle in the darkness for his warmth, his peacefulness, the joy that seemed indomitable. And yet because of these things, he also became the target of ridicule and scorn from some of the other inmates. There were two in particular that physically would rough him up from time to time and mock everything that he held sacred, this priest. Well, time came when, when David, the man, uh, the character in the story, or the, the main, uh, the guy who's telling the story, he receives a package from his wife. It's a food package, freshly baked bread, which in that environment is, is a rare and prized thing. And as soon as he opens it, the eyes of all are looking to him to see who you're going to share it with. He breaks it in half and gives the other half to this priest who receives it and says, thank you, and immediately breaks it in two and gives one to one of the tormentors and the other to the other tormentor. David's upset. He objects. No, you can't do it. You're, you're, you're old. You're weak. You, you must eat this. And he, and he says, leave me be. They need it more than I do. I will be with my God soon. And in a few days, he died, having given one of his last meals away to his very persecutors. And after that, there was no more mocking of that priest in that cell. He had done just what Peter said. By his good deeds, he, he changed the minds of the others, and they said, we, we can't help but glorify God and, and see goodness for what it is. So to that theme of, of doing good, and what does it look like as exiles to live good lives? 
Well, our passage in in chapter 2 that that we have today, Peter gives direction. He actually gives very practical instruction for what this looks like, and he draws out three scenarios. So we're going to go through these three. The first is, what does it look like to live such good lives as exiles while we relate to secular authority? So that's number one. Then number two, related to that, okay, but what does it look like to live good lives when that secular authority is mistreating us? And then number three, related to that, okay, what about unjust suffering in general? What happens when we are on the receiving end of any kind of mistreatment from from any quarter? How do we then live good lives? So relating to secular authority, what does it look like when that secular authority is unjust and mistreats us? And then finally, what about unjust suffering in general? And the answer in all three, Peter says, is we respond with humility peacefulness, and submission. Yes, and I I know that's a hard word. It can be a scary word for some of you. It's a scary thing to submit ourselves to other authorities in our lives or endure mistreatment or unjust suffering because the moment we do that, the moment we let go of control, we're giving ourselves to and control to something or someone that we don't know if we can trust. We're afraid, but what will happen to me? Will I disappear? Will I become invisible? And let me assure you from the beginning that the goal of this command is not that you would become invisible, but that you would become invincible. And here's how. The key is entrusting ourselves to God. So look at verse 23, the end of it. Speaking of Jesus, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, that is to God, the one who judges justly. So what does it mean to entrust ourselves to God? Well, it means to put ourselves and the whole situation in God's hands. And when we do that, we know that even though I've given up control, actually he's the one in control. And that over every earthly authority is a greater authority who is keeping every earthly authority accountable. And in every unjust suffering, there is a just judge who will vindicate the innocent at the appointed time. Or as the psalm says, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. So to the first scenario that Peter draws up for us, how do we live such good lives in relation to secular authority? So to turn now to verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, there it is, that theme, doing good, you would silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but rather living as servants of God. Honor Everyone, honor everyone, including those who are mistreating you, those who disagree with you. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. So we honor everyone, but we have a special love, tenderness, care for our brothers and sisters in the fellowship. Fear God, which Steve preached about last week, and then finally honor the emperor. So let's go to verse 15. What does Peter mean when he says, by doing good, you'll silence the talk of foolish people, their ignorance? Well, at the beginning, as I said a moment ago, there was a lot of misunderstanding about Christianity in the early decades. 
There was a lot of fear about this new religion. Would it upset our society? Are these Christians rebels? And Peter says, show them that that thinking is nonsense. Show them that we are a peaceful people. You know, it's popular sometimes to characterize Jesus as some kind of radical revolutionary, the kind of figure you might find in the French Revolution. But I tell you that the rebellious and revolutionary spirit is antithetical to the Holy Spirit. Jesus, actually, when we read the Gospels, He didn't seem all that interested in secular politics. Once He was asked a question about taxes. That's about the extent of His teaching. And He said, yeah, sure, pay taxes. But really, there's, there's bigger stuff that I care about. We've got bigger fish to fry. When he does finally have a face-to-face -face interaction with secular authority at his trial, he's with Pilate, and with Pilate he's respectful. He's a bit spare in his conversation. He's bold and he tells the truth. You would have no authority except my father gives it. But he's not a rebel. He's not resisting. When he goes to Herod, he's silent. If you can't think of anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? Remember, Herod was the one whose dad tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was a baby, and before him, Jesus has nothing to say. And in his silence, he's respecting the authority, even though there's not much to respect in Herod. Now, we say this, but it's also true that the way of Jesus and his teaching is revolutionary. And when the gospel and when the kingdom of Christ takes root in a society and in a culture, it will, over time, transform that society that it takes root in. But this is slow and organic. It is not by armed rebellion. Yes, we work for change, but we do so peacefully, not by force or revolution. Verse 13, Jesus says, or sorry, Peter says, be subject be subject. What does he mean? What does that verb to be subject mean? Well, it simply means obey the laws of the land. Accept that the government over you is the government over you and that they have authority in civil affairs. That's, that's all it simply means. Are there exceptions to when we should uh, submit to the government? Yes, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what's normative for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, what's normative is that we obey civil authority. We're dutiful, law-abiding citizens. And notice he does say every human institution. So this includes teachers and coaches and referees. And if the librarian says, hey, don't clip your toenails in the entryway, man, then you say, okay, all right. To hear is to obey. Verse 17, the end of it. What, you've never done that before? Okay. <laughs> At the end of verse 17, he says, honor the emperor. Let's talk about this. This does for us in our context refer to our president, Donald Trump, and any president we would have. But it also refers to the whole system of elected officials, our government, including the officials and the leaders you like and including the ones you don't like. This call to honor is true for all. And now it helps us, as soon as we say that, it's helpful to know that honor in this case doesn't 
we think of it meaning emotions or kind of this inward feeling. I'm, I'm feeling honoring feelings towards somebody. Actually, the, the sense of, of the verb is more an outward external action, something you do, concrete, whatever, and regardless of your emotions at the time. So paying taxes is a way of honoring the emperor and stopping at red lights is a way of honoring the emperor. And I, I checked with the bishop uh, before he left for Ohio, and he said, yes, indeed, even he stops for red lights. To honor does not mean to endorse everything a leader does or says. It certainly does not mean to approve of everything a leader or a government says or does. By no means. But let me ask you this question. Can you disagree with someone and still honor them? Can you disagree with somebody vehemently and still do that honorably? Yes, you can. Now, of course, you can do it dishonorably, or you can do it honorably. And Peter is saying, choose the better way. If you're going to disagree, if you're going to be passionate about something, be passionate, but do so honorably. Now, different from the ancient world, our society requires and depends upon every individual citizen having informed opinions about our leadership, our government, our leaders, how things are going. We're supposed to have ideas about this. We're supposed to have political conversations from time to time. But I think that best happens in smaller circles with family and friends, trusted counselors, folks that you really care what they think, and, and they actually really care what you think. Most of the spheres in which we have these political conversations or debates are not that. So probably to be faithful to the Scripture, we would be talking about politics probably a little bit less and in different settings, especially face-to-face -face with those that we really want to hear, what do you think? So we inform our opinion. So then it's worth it to ask yourself when you're in a conversation about politics or government or authority or whatever, first ask yourself the question, do I need to be having this conversation? Is this necessary for me to inform my opinion or help someone else inform their opinion? If not, if it's just regurgitating the newsreel, maybe you don't have to have that conversation. Maybe it's just unnecessary, a waste of breath. Second, if you are going to have that conversation, then it's also really important to ask yourself the second question, which is, okay, am I honoring those that I'm speaking about? Are my words and my manner of speech honorable? even if and especially when I disagree. If you ask these questions, is it necessary for me to have this conversation? And then if I am having the conversation, am I honoring and is it honorable? That may not change what you think or what you say a whole lot, but it probably will change how you say it and how often you say it. And for sure, petty insults, mocking, scoffing, scorn, vitriol, these have no place in the kingdom of Jesus. No place. Now, Jesus got worked up about stuff, didn't he? You've read the Gospels. There were, there were leaders and there were ideas to which he was adamantly opposed. And when he grew full of righteous indignation, he could thunder away with the best of them. He thundered when he was upset about something. And his rebukes could be scathing. If you read the Gospels with wide open eyes, his rebukes could be scathing, but they were never scoffing. They were never petty. They were never mocking or scornful. 
So that's our relationship to governing authority. What about more interpersonal levels of authority, things that are a little bit closer to home, the relationships we're in? Uh, look now to verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Unjust can mean cruel, crooked, truly unjust, awful. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, and that makes all the difference, right? You try to do this not being mindful of God, then it's just empty legalism or an empty ritual, or religion, I mean. There's no power in it, and it, it feels awful. But if you do this mindful of God, aware that He's mindful of you, aware of His care for you, His power, His love for you, it makes all the difference. Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if, if you sin and you're, you're beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and then you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Or we read verses like this, and oftentimes the first question, the first place we go to is, whoa, well, wait a minute, does this mean that the Bible is condoning abuse? And the answer is an emphatic, no, not at all. Of course not. And whenever you run up into questions like that, it's always a good idea to take a step back, look at the whole picture of the Bible, and particularly zero in on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Does, would Jesus ever condone abuse? Would he ever look the other way? No. So the Bible is not condoning abuse, and in cases of any kind of abuse, there's time to speak up and to let be known what has happened. That, that's important. But that's an extreme example. That's not what Peter's talking about. What he's doing is he's contrasting between a pilfering servant and one who's suffering for doing good. So pilfering, or, or you think of a servant who maybe is over the wine cellar in a, in a big house, and the master's not been treating the servant well, so the servant thinks, well, I'm going to help myself to a couple bottles of wine. That would be stealing. That would be pilfering. And Peter's saying, don't do that. And if you get caught and you're punished for that and you endure the punishment, you're, you're not really a hero. You shouldn't have done that to begin with. But he says, on the other hand, if you are doing good, if you're acting mercifully, so uh, imagine perhaps a scenario where there's a, two servants, one is stronger, one is weaker, and the stronger servant is helping the weaker servant do some of the work. And for whatever reason, maybe the master sees this and, and doesn't like it. Hey, you, he should be doing his own work. You stick to your work and he beats the first servant for helping out. Or, or this happened all the time where the servant who was actually in charge of money or, or had authority on behalf of the master, the master would come and say, all right, we're going to put a little bribe, a little money in the right place is going to help us. And if in that case the servant said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I won't make a bribe. That, that's not what I'm going to do. Even though you, my master, are asking me to do that, I, I won't do that. In that case, that servant might be punished or beaten, but for a good reason. I'm, I'm not going to do something unjust like make a bribe to obstruct justice. So Peter's saying in those cases, it's an honor to suffer unjustly. The second question that we oftentimes will, will come away with at a passage like this is, okay, well, if it's not condoning abuse, is it condoning slavery? Keep in mind that Peter is writing in a society where slavery is a fact. 
Right? And his main goal at this moment is to help the slaves know, how can I still be faithful in this particular situation that I find myself in? Peter himself knowing that they might not be out of that situation anytime soon or ever in their life. In other parts of the Bible, Paul's writing, and he very clearly says to slaves, look, if you can get your freedom, do it. Avail yourself of that opportunity. Freedom is better than slavery. And it is also helpful for us to remember that slavery was different then than it is now. Often servants then or slaves were paid. Oftentimes they could and did work for their freedom. They were treated well for the most part. And this is key, too. Slavery in the Roman world was not specific to any race or ethnicity. When we think about slavery, we think about one people group enslaving another people group. That wasn't the slavery of the Roman Empire. And in fact, the only time where the Bible specifically deals with that kind of slavery is in the book of Exodus, when the people of God were enslaved by the Egyptians. So if you want to know what God thinks about slavery, go read the book of Exodus. The Bible does not condone slavery. But Peter's writing to slaves, and it's true that they're living in a somewhat limited station in life. But actually, as we look at that list of what the life of, of a servant was like, actually the rough equivalent for us today is you, me, and every other working stiff in this congregation. We're talking about employment here. All right, look at verse 18 again. Employees, be subject to your bosses and your supervisors with all respect, not only to the good bosses, but also to the bad bosses. That's what he's saying. How do we live such good lives as exiles in this foreign land? Well, one way is we be the kind of employee that every boss would want to have. Be the kind of employee that every boss would love to have. And no pilfering. So if you've got the company credit card, don't buy yourself a meal when you're not on company business. That's stealing. That's pilfering. But also, have a great attitude, a great work ethic. Be content whatever your job may be. And like we said earlier, sometimes in the workplace, uh, we have to talk about our bosses or our coworkers, so keep our speech honorable. Sometimes we have to talk about the hard things that aren't going so well, and it involves our bosses or our coworkers. Probably most of the time that we're talking about these people, that we, we don't need to be in that conversation. So again, we ask ourselves the question, do I need to be having this conversation? Do I need to be talking about my boss or my coworkers? And then in those rarer instances where, yes, we, we need to have a conversation, then again, the second question, all right, is my speech honorable? Am I honoring them even if I have to talk about some things I'm hoping they can change? All right, number two, the second scenario that Peter draws up for us. All right, so what if this secular authority, whether on the government level or, or in the inter interpersonal level, but what if that authority is mistreating us? And we're suffering unjustly. Look again to verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's the answer. Let's keep in mind that Peter, when he's writing this letter, Nero is the emperor. Nero is the guy who a few years later will order 
Peter's execution. And do you imagine that as Peter's walking towards his execution, he's saying, you know what, I recant. Forget what I said. Dishonor this guy. Are you kidding me? No, that's not what he said. I don't think he would say that. I think he would say, even now, even as I'm going to my own execution, prove to this emperor why what he's doing right now is wrong, that we shouldn't be persecuted. Continue to honor the emperor, even unto death. That was what Peter did. I think of another Old Testament example of of Daniel. Daniel, who served Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, who was responsible and, and orchestrated the invasion and the destruction of Daniel's own homeland. And here's Daniel in a faraway country, whether by choice or whether by force, we don't know, but he's serving Nebuchadnezzar, and he serves him well. There's none of that resistance, rebellious spirit. In fact, Daniel becomes one of his chief counselors. It's because he knew it wasn't his place to judge Nebuchadnezzar. That was God's job. It is God who raises up and puts down kings and governments and authorities. And actually, God did this, if you know the rest of the story. In Daniel chapter 4, God humbles Nebuchadnezzar for a time, and he turns him into a wild beast for several years. And this is key to this whole idea of entrusting ourselves to God and entrusting these situations. When it comes to the authority that's over us, and especially in unjust suffering, it helps us to remember it. We have to remember and believe that one day every king... Every emperor, every president will be held accountable for what they've said and what they've done. Every single leader will have to give account to God, here's what I did, here's what I said, here's why I did it, and find out on that day whether it was just for them to do that or not. But again, Daniel understood, on that day it will be God judging, not me. I entrust myself to Him. But then even with Daniel… And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here come those exceptions that I said, yes, sometimes there's an exception to this rule. And it's any time that the king or the authority, the governing authority, makes a law or asks something of you that is a direct, clear contradiction of God's law. And when that happened, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were clear and they said, we must obey God rather than you. So the three friends, when they were about to be thrown into the furnace, Don't you love their courage? But they were also courteous. None of that resistance spirit, none of that rebellious spirit. It was just simply, we're going to tell you, Nebuchadnezzar, that we will not bow down to your idol. Furthermore, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will never bow down. We will never obey this law of yours. We cannot. Even if he doesn't save us. Talk about entrusting yourself to God even if he doesn't save me from this fire. I also love the the Hebrew midwives back earlier in the story of, of Israel and Egypt. Pharaoh had commanded the midwives to kill every Hebrew baby boy. But the, the midwives didn't do it. These women refused. They rejected this command. And then when Pharaoh found out that baby boys were, were staying alive, he called them in, and, and they made up this really clever story. He said, well, you know, Hebrew women, they just give birth so vigorously that these babies, they just come out before we have a time to get there. Well, the van's still on the way to the hospital. 
Somebody should make a, a TV show called The Hebrew Midwives. I love The Hebrew Midwives. So yes, there are exceptions, but barring a clear contradiction between the king's law and God's law, barring that, Peter is saying, be subject to civil authority and even pray for them. Now, what if on the interpersonal level, in our jobs, what if we're mistreated? What if we're overlooked, undervalued? What if you're underpaid? What if you have poor working conditions? Well, like Paul speaking to the slaves, if you can get your freedom, do it. If you can get a new job, do it. That's a good thing. But if you can't get a new job, work hard, have a good attitude, and wait for God to raise you up. Trust that He will in due time. Finally, the, the third scenario. As we've talked about living under secular authority, but what happens if they treat us unjustly? Then Peter addresses what happens with unjust suffering in general. What happens when we're mistreated from, from any source and any quarter, whether it's a sibling or a spouse or friend or children, our clients, our students, our neighbors, our extended family? What if we're being mistreated and suffering unjustly? How do we respond? Look with me at verse 21. Here's what Peter says. To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He's laying the foundation of Jesus' innocence. Jesus deserved none of the suffering that he got. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In other words, by his wounds, your wounds go away. You were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what do we do when we're enduring unjust suffering of, of any kind? We endure it unto the Lord. We entrust ourselves to Him, mindful of God. That is, remembering that Jesus did this for us first. So now we have the chance, we have the opportunity, we have the freedom to not revile when others are reviling us, to not threaten or fight back when we're suffering or being mistreated. We have the, the opportunity, the chance to do something better and to bless and to forgive. Oh, that we would be constantly forgiving and always keeping our conduct honorable and noble. Now, apart from Jesus, we, we have no option but tit for tat. You revile me, I'm going to revile you with great revilings. That's the only option apart from Jesus. And in Jesus, he's saying, you can choose a better way. There's a better way that is now opened to you, just as Jesus himself chose a better way. A few weeks ago, we were on our way to apple picking, and we were driving through a, a backcountry road, a small little road, and I said, I think we're close. Uh, keep your eye out, everybody, for Royal Oak Farms. Okay, when you see the sign, holler. And then as soon as I said this, a, a voice in the back from my five-year-old Simon said, I can't read. <laughs> All right, that point will be relevant in just a second. Fast forward or, or reverse now even further back to the summertime. 
Caroline and, and Simon are going at it, and he is treating her unjustly. He's following her around and doing all the bothersome little things that little brothers can do. He's picking at her clothes. He's, he's pinching her. He's nagging at her and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and she's responding. She's smacking him. She's tackling him. She's growling at him, doing all the things that justifiably you would think a seven-year-old would do. But finally, we sat her down. We said, okay, Caroline, I understand why you're, you're doing that. You're, you're, you're justified. He's bothering you. He shouldn't be doing that. But I wonder if there's a better way because this doesn't seem to be working. Can, can you imagine a better way? She started thinking, she said, well, Simon can't read. What if I started reading to him 15 minutes every day? I just spent time reading to him. I said, that's a great idea. Now, are you going to read the books that you really love, or are you going to read the books that he really loves? She said, I'll read the books that he really loves. And it was amazing to see just the, the tiny miracle, the transformation in that relationship. As Caroline, she could have justifiably continued to just whack him till Tuesday, but instead she said, I'm going to choose a better way. Jesus chose the better way. And to close, why did he do that? Because he loves you. He saw under the layers of your sin the true you who he was redeeming, who he was saving, who he was going after. And in his sacrifice on the cross, he loved you more than he loved himself. He loved you more than he loved what was fair for him. Again, verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's by his wounds that were healed. Fairness had nothing to do with it. And there are husbands in this room right now who you need to learn again what it means to lay down your life for your wife, and you just need to remember that fairness has nothing to do with it. And for everyone, with those who are mistreating you, the question is, yes, you, you could respond justifiably, tit for tat, reviling for reviling, but the question is, will you choose the better way, and will you love them more than yourself. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Put yourself in his hands, and he will raise you up at the appointed time. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, Check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.